Jewish Audio on Chabad.org. Welcome, everyone. This is Ordinary People with Extraordinary Stories. I'm Chana Weisberg, host of this podcast. Today, we have a special guest. I'm here with Amanda Sarah Spiro. Welcome. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. So, Sarah, you're going to, Amanda, Sarah, what would you like me to call you? You can call me Amanda, but if you call me Sarah, it's cool too. Okay. (laughs) Either one works. They're both my names. So Amanda has quite an interesting journey towards Judaism. She also had, you also had a life-threatening illness and uh, stay tuned for the ride because she's going to tell us all about it. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, Tell us a little bit about your background, a little about your childhood. Okay, so I grew up in a very privileged home. I had everything I needed, everything I wanted. I was in a very close home. It was just me and my brother. We're a very tight-knit home. Was this in Uh, Montreal? Where are you from? This was in Montreal, yes. I was raised in Montreal. I still live in Montreal. Um, I was a very social girl. I never missed a party. I was always the life of a party. We traveled a lot as a family. We liked to go to restaurants. Um, I didn't grow up observant. I mm-hmm. grew up where, you know, I would go to shul on the holidays, and that was really pretty much it. I didn't go to a Jewish school. I had a little bit of background. My grandparents were traditional. I definitely connected to my Judaism. I was a proud Jew, but that's really where it started and where it ended. And socially, you were you you were a social butterfly, I guess. I'm I'm still a social butterfly. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I never missed the party. I had okay. serious FOMO. I was always a life of a party. I really loved to be around people. I still do. So what made you look for Judaism? How did that come about if you grew up in a non-religious background? So from a young age, I always felt like I had something missing in my life. I didn't know what that something was. And I kind of was always searching. And were you the type to like be thinking a lot about things? Is that it? Usually we don't think like someone who's so social and the social butterfly has so much on their head to think about in terms of profound ideas, but you did. So I think when I was out and about Mm -hmm. socializing, working in school, traveling, I didn't think too much. Mm -hmm. I was very present. I was enjoying the moment. I was grateful. I think in the quiet moments, bedtime, you know, back then we didn't have any distractions, which was a good thing in a way. Right. It allowed me to go inwards. Right. I would think a lot. And I always felt like there has to be more to life. What, what did and you feel was missing? Difficult. I didn't know what that something was. Why, why was, did life feel difficult? Like, what was it that made you feel difficult? I felt like life was very overwhelming. Sometimes I felt like it was too busy and I couldn't mm-hmm. catch my breath. Mm-hmm. I felt like there was a lot of pressure with school, right? Like that was the majority of my time was spent in school School was not easy for me. I had a hard time with it. I didn't enjoy it at all. So I felt like Mm -hmm. every day I'd wake up and I'd go to school, something I didn't like. Mm -hmm. And I just felt that, you know, anything I'd hear in the news always was very hard to take. Mm -hmm. And these were a lot of our conversations. You know, when you don't have God in your life and you're not talking about something deeper, you're talking about often things that are superficial, not always, but, you know, what's going on in the world people that are sick, people that went bankrupt. Like these are conversations that I would have in my home and I just would often get overwhelmed. Were you, do you think that you were like a very sensitive child? I'm still very sensitive. You're still very sensitive. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. I was very extremely sensitive. So you were sensitive sensitive to all these things that were happening around you and you didn't really have a frame of reference of how to understand it. Is that it? That's exactly it. It's also my mother's father passed away when I was born. 
And she didn't really speak so much about it, but she would often just make reference, you know, my father passed away. And I remember always thinking like, oh my goodness, like I couldn't even imagine my life without my parents. I couldn't imagine my life without anyone that was really important in my life. Hmm. Death was something that I thought about all the time. It overtook me. I was petrified. I was scared of my own shadow. That's what my mother would always say. You're scared of your own shadow. And you think that was because your grandfather passed away when you were so young or before you were born? I think so. I think it would just introduce me to death, you know? Right. Wow. And I remember just looking up to my mother who is extremely strong and always saying to myself, like, how does she do it? I don't think I'd be able to do this. Interesting. So you grew up in this privileged home, yet you felt like this, something was missing. Something was, you were looking for, for answers to deeper questions. How did you find it? So it took a really long time to find. Um, I found it when my friend passed away. I was 17 years old and my friend was killed in a car accident. It was extremely tragic. She was a celebrity. She was on the front page of the People magazine, the voice of Caillou. And that really hit me hard. I went into deep grief. I was mourning. I had a really hard time and lots of questions came up. And it was at that time that I saw a lot of help, a lot of professional help. And I wasn't really getting my answers there. And it was really only later when I went on birthright a couple of years after she passed away. And it was the first time that I felt a sense of calm and I felt safe and I felt a sense of relief. What and made you feel that calm? What was it that made you feel that set, that relief? I really feel it was like this, like spiritual energy, you know, just being in Israel. Israel. And there was such a hype about going to Israel. Mm. And even though I didn't go to a Jewish school, I remember just getting there and touching the ground and just being so emotional and going to the hotel, never even learning about it, but writing that letter and putting it in the wall and just like surrendering, you know, all my emotions were on that paper. I spent a lot of time writing and I just really connected with the land of Israel. And also on that trip, my leaders were Shomer Shabbos. It wasn't a religious trip, but they were Shomer Shabbos. And it was really the first people that I met that were Shomer Shabbos. And I was very intrigued by them and they were extremely normal and I was inspired. So just for our our, our listeners, Shomer Shabbos means that they kept, they observed the Sabbath, they observed the Shabbat day and they kept all the laws. So you were intrigued, but I, I find it interesting, like you're the fear that you had as a little child kind of followed you. And as you were 17, this friend of yours passed away. So that fear became overwhelming. And yet you're finding some kind of spiritual solace in Israel and from these Shomer Shabbat Shabbat people. Exactly. Exactly. It was like my worst nightmare when she passed away. It really Mm -hmm. was, you know, Mm -hmm. I went into complete shock. And so after this trip to birthright, the following year, I went on the March of Living. Mm-hmm. And it was really this trip that my life completely transformed. I met Rabbi Penny Ganevish on the trip mm-hmm. and I poured my heart out to him and I shared with him everything I was feeling and everything I was thinking. And he shared with me something that he had gone through, a loss. And it was really that moment. It was my Oprah aha moment. For a brief second, life wasn't scary, overwhelming. I really felt that there was a plan for what I was going through. And he kind of made sense of a lot of things that I thought throughout my life. What did he share with you? Everyone always asks me that. That's always the question. <laughs> so What's I really the magic? don't. I, we all want to yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> I know. So I don't remember exactly what he said right then mm-hmm. and there, but I remember just feeling, I remember him definitely saying, you know, that there's a reason for everything. Mm-hmm. 
and him introducing me a little bit to Hasidus and the deeper meanings behind everything. And I just felt the way he spoke to me. I trusted him. There was something about the way he spoke that I feel like this guy gets it. He so understands. For our listeners, who is this Rabbi Penny Ganevish who had such an impact on you? Tell us a little about him. So he's extremely influential in Montreal. Mm -hmm. He's very involved. He does the Living Legacy, which is an organization that goes to different schools in Montreal. I believe they have it around the world as well for different programs and different holidays. Mm -hmm. And he's also just that rabbi that, you know, travels to Israel and has people over. He does a lot of good work. And he really just spoke to me. He was very relatable, not judgmental, very inspirational. Everything he said, I was like, wow, I never heard this before. This is so beautiful. Like it really just resonated with me. So it was the the knowledge that everything has a reason, everything has a purpose that kind of calmed you? Absolutely. And after the trip, I stayed in touch with him. Mm-hmm. And I met his family and I was like a regular guest at their Shabbos table. And every time I would go there, I'd always learn something new. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just learning that the greatest darkness brings the greatest light. And that really resonated with me as well. And there was mm-hmm. just so much that he taught me. Every time I'd go there, I'd ask so many questions and he would always, you know, share the Parsha of the week. And just from that, I would learn so much and connect to it. Wow. Interesting. So you must have been, this must, at what age were you when you were? I was 17 years old when my friend passed away. I was just turning 18. And that's when you met him. And then you came back to Montreal and you spent a lot of time at his Shabbat table. Yes. They became really good friends of mine. And is that what led you to become observant? So there were a few years that we just had this friendship and I'd go Mm -hmm. there as much as I possibly can, but I was kind of living in two worlds. So I'd go there for Shabbos. I really enjoyed it. It was always a beautiful meal, so much inspiration, always good company. But then I'd go out afterwards. Like I said, I was a party girl. So I'd always go to the parties and I was slowly starting to get back to myself as well. You know, after my friend passed away, after I met Penny, I was getting strained to continue and keep going. And I would just go there. And then a couple of years later, I got really sick. No one really knew what was wrong with me. And this is when you were what, when you were 20? So I was 20, 21 years old. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I was 21 years old. I was waitressing at a restaurant at the time. And all of a sudden I started to really not feel well. And I left work right away. My friend picked me up. She drove me home and I wasn't able to get out of the car. Wow. I had no movement in my hand and I felt like I was having a heart attack and she rushed me to the hospital right away. I was actually misdiagnosed there. I was seen by different doctors and specialists. I was there for 10 days. Hmm. All they were able to see was that there was an enzyme in my heart that was released at an abnormally high level. And I needed to be on IV in order to dilute it out of my system. And in that period of time, I wasn't able to walk. I wasn't able to do anything on my own. I was extremely weak, fragile. I couldn't even go to the washroom on my own. And that was a very difficult period for me. It must have been so frightening. It was very, very scary. Were you thinking about death at that point or not really? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That was definitely a scary point for me. And the scariest part was no one had answers. And that's always been my thing. Like, where's the answers? They didn't have answers in terms of what? In terms of what your illness was? Medical. Yes. Yeah. They didn't know. They said it was extremely rare. That's what they kept saying. Mm -hmm. They repeated that over and over. It's extremely rare. We don't know why this happened. Um, We're just trying to get her back to baseline, essentially. And they were hoping that I'd be better. 
And so once I was released out of the hospital, I had to do physio. I really had to get back to myself and I had to adjust back into normal life after being away from school for so long. And then months later, so that was in March. So you said you were misdiagnosed. That was not a correct diagnosis? That was something. Mm-hmm. And I did find out later on that I had a muscle muscle disease, which I still have. Mm-hmm. And it essentially happened because my immune system was so low, right? Because mm-hmm. I was fighting something bigger. Months later, in July, I woke up with very similar feelings. And I called my mother right away. And I said, I feel the same thing I felt back in March. And she said, rush yourself to the hospital. I'm going to meet you there. And so I went to the hospital and I was actually seen by a family friend who is an oncologist, never thinking that it would be cancer, just knowing that no one really took us seriously and he's going to take us seriously. So he ran tons and tons of tests. I got back into his office and he saw that there was something. He made me do more testing. And then once I got back to his office, I was actually surrounded by my entire family. He called them in. And that's when I was diagnosed with cancer. Wow. I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma and my tumor was 11.4 centimeters. So it was pretty large. I was misdiagnosed. I had to move really quick. And so just a couple of days later, I had a surgery. I had a biopsy, recovered from that. And then I started the treatments. Wow. So this was the real reason why you were feeling that way back those few months earlier. They just misdiagnosed you. Wow. Exactly. And during that time, I guess it grew, it grew to the 11 centimeters that you were saying? Right, exactly. And I had to do radiation as well, Mm -hmm. chemotherapy. They -hmm. weren't sure if I would have had to have done radiation if they caught it in time. Oh, wow. And when I was diagnosed, they actually called the hospital where I was treated months earlier to get the report. And the report came in with seconds and it said high prominence in chest. The report came in with what? Highly recommended to do CTs. The report came in and it said high prominence in chest, highly recommended to do CT scan with infusion immediately, and it was never done. Oh my gosh, wow. Yeah, so that was also very difficult because Mm -hmm. I knew something was wrong and Mm -hmm. it was hard. How long was your treatment for? My chemotherapy was for six months. It was every Mm -hmm. second week. And then in between that time, I would be, uh, I would have a shot um, to boost up my white blood cells. And that was for six months. Then I had to take a break for a while just to recover. And then I started radiation for two months. And that was done every day for two months. And at the same time, I was on steroid therapy and, of course, lots and lots of medication. Wow. What was that like for you? What were your thoughts that were going through your head during that time? So right when it happened, my first intuition was to call this rabbi. Rabbi Ganevish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just felt like he was going to say the right thing to mm-hmm. calm me down. And I did. And he was actually on his way to Israel. And he's like, I'm going to pray for you. What's your Hebrew name? I think that might have been the first time that I discovered what my Hebrew name was. You know? <laughs> it's a beautiful <laughs> name, Sarah. Yeah, Sarah Riva. Yeah. And, um, and then when he came home, um, he really like took me under his wing. But I think from the get-go, I really felt like, wow, this is really big. I just went through my friend passing away. I'm still grieving. And now this is happening. Like something's going on. And I kind of was just in motion. Like I just had to keep going. And so I didn't really have so much time to think. But Mm -hmm. from the get-go, I really felt like this was happening for a reason. And I felt very well surrounded and very supported. And I felt like I was in good hands. My mother took charge as well. You know, she Mm -hmm. made sure everything that had to happen, happened. I didn't think too much. 
And in a way, there was also this sense of relief because the doctors told me that I had to take it really easy. They knew I was super busy. I was working at the time. I was in university studying psychology. They said, you really should take a break from school, from work. I moved back home. I was living on my own downtown Montreal, moved back home with my parents. And so I kind of had no worries at that time. You know, mm-hmm. financial obligations, school always stressed me out. Like I told you, I'd pull all night or studying all night. I had none of that. So I kind of felt like it was my time to just be present and reflect mm-hmm. on everything in my life. And it was precious moments that I had during that illness mm-hmm. that I'm so grateful for. Wow. That's interesting that you're so grateful for. I mean, we usually don't look at illness as a time that we can be grateful for. Right. Right. Wow. I mean, it's it's obvious that it was very challenging, all the treatments. Right. It wasn't fun. It was painful. It was exhausting. Of course. You know, I lost my sense of identity. There was a lot that went on, you know. What, but, why did you lose your sense of identity? You know, from being this girl that was very confident, always mm-hmm. looked good, always felt good. I was actually a model. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, I lost all my hair. I was bald. I was on steroids. I was completely bloated. My skin broke out. I never had a pimple in my life. All of a sudden, I had tons of pimples. I completely lost myself. I would look in the mirror and I didn't even recognize myself. People didn't recognize me. You know, I would bump into people. I'm like, hi, how are you? And they would take a second. I'm like, it's Amanda. It's Amanda. Oh, and they would feel so bad. And that was also an awkward encounter and very challenging. So that was hard. That was really Mm -hmm. hard, you know? So why are you grateful for that time? Because I was forced to look inwards, which I never really Mm -hmm. did before. I was Mm -hmm. forced to look at inner beauty and connect to my true essence, to my soul, to my neshama. And that was a really beautiful, powerful, holy experience. Wow. That's beautiful. So this lasted for how, like about a half a year, a year? No, I would say it was like a year. It was even a bit over a year. Yeah. Over a year. And after that, you were declared cancer-free? So I went into remission on February 28th. Yeah. And then after that, I actually went to Israel. That was my dream. I always felt, like I said, very calm when I was in Israel and connected. And I just wanted to escape after all this. It was an extremely overwhelming year. Like I said, it was very beautiful. But I felt that I just needed to get away and experience mm-hmm. something different. And so that was part of my whole journey as well is planning a trip to Israel when I'd be healthy. It was something that I looked forward to. It was something I manifested. And I got accepted to study at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem to continue my studies. And I ended up going to seminary as well. And mm-hmm. so as soon as my treatments were done, which was in February, I believe I went in the summer. So of course, after the treatments, I was out of commission for a while. The radiation really sure. knocks, you, knocks out. you out. Sure. So I was in bed and watched a lot of shows and mm-hmm. read a lot and just took that quiet time. But then after that, I started preparing to go to Israel, packing my bags, organizing myself. You know, there was a lot to do as well medically to get treated there, to be seen there. Um, so that was what I did after I finished my treatments. I went to Israel. So you mentioned you went to study in a seminary there. Was was that when you learned more about Torah and Judaism? Absolutely. So like I said, I was learning a lot before I went, right. but very slowly. Sure. But I think when I got there and I started learning in a seminary, it kind of solidified everything and everything really started making sense. I think that's when I was really introduced to God, to Halacha, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I was so grateful that I was here to tell my story. And I really just wanted to serve God however I possibly can. Wow. Okay. Interesting. So you went back then, I guess, after that to Montreal, how did your family look at your change? This, this new Amanda? Right. So my parents were super supportive throughout the whole journey. I think they saw the whole story unfold and they knew that it gave me so much support. I believe it gave them a lot of support as well. My father was going to shul every Shabbos to the Ganevish's shul. Uh, Penny's sister is a shlucha at uh, Chabad of TMR in Montreal. So he would go there often. And my parents actually completely changed their home around. Mm-hmm. They made it Chal of Yisrael. They got rid of all their china. They got new stuff. They mikvetted everything. They were really, really amazing. Of course, there were challenges along the way. I remember my mom came to visit me when I was in Israel, and she took me to Eilat. And, you know, I had this cute, lightweight summer dress. And my mother turns to me at one point. She's like, Amanda, and it was a schmoiling day. It was so hot. She's like, you're not going to take off your dress. I was like, oh my goodness, absolutely not. And I remember it being so foreign to her. Like that was a moment for her where she was like, wow, Amanda's really religious, you know? Wow, wow. And, you know, there were definitely moments like that or, you know, moments like, oh, you're not going to come to this restaurant with us anymore. But I think once we got through all those little hurdles, now she's just used to it, you know? And I think think it's normal that those challenges are going to happen once you're becoming religious. It's bound to happen to expect it. Right. But I would say that I was really lucky that she really was unbelievable and she really accepted the whole thing. Do you have any like tips or advice for people to in how to treat their family or family members when they are becoming religious so that there isn't this resentment or vice Absolutely. versa? Right. So I think it's so important that once you're on this journey, even myself, I caught myself at times judging It's so hard not to, right? All of a sudden you learn the world of truth and everyone else is doing different things. It's so hard for your brain not to go there, but to kind of rewire your brain and to really just accept them. You want to be accepted. You have to accept them and just go in with love Mm -hmm. and just be you. And I think you lead by example. When Mm -hmm. people see that you're happy and you're healthy and you're living your best life, it's contagious. Mm -hmm. Especially right? to and those that love you, right? And those absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think also just being strong and constantly working on yourself because there will be moments that are challenging. Sure. But if you really trust that you're doing the right thing and that God is on your side and He's surrounding you, everything's gonna work out in the end. And mm-hmm. you just have to keep going. And anything good in life requires a big investment, a lot of effort, but the rewards are unbelievable and so worth it. Amazing. Um, what about friends? Did you still keep up with your old friends or did you get a new set of friends? How did that work? So I have so many new friends, of course, from <laughs> right. all over the world because I travel. So I meet people on a daily basis. Sure. Um, I always say my friends are like my Chabad house, yeah. right? My friends come to my house for Shabbos all the time. Purim, we have a big party. Sukkot, which is around the corner. They're in my sukkah every night. My husband is constantly going and putting up mezuzahs and, you know, we're very involved in my friends' lives and they come to me all the time and they're my friends. I see them. We're very connected and people always ask me that question. And I think when you connect on a soul level, those friends are really long lasting relationships. 
That's nice to hear that you still keep up with them and that you still I have actually that have more friends that aren't religious than religious. Interesting. Wow. Right. Because like I said from the beginning, my life was great. There was nothing, right. you know, it was just that missing connection to God that I was really searching for as a young girl. But mm -hmm. I had amazing friends. I had an amazing family. I had an amazing upbringing, great values. It was just that missing piece, which is big. It's not so small. It's really big sure. not to have that presence in your life that guides you and you feel supported on a daily basis and you feel grounded knowing you are taken care of. Absolutely. You mentioned your husband. Can you tell us a little about him? Absolutely. <laughs> so how did you meet? Where did you meet? <laughs> so I had the best Shachan in the world, which was Hashem, which was God. We actually met at a young Shachan age. is matchmaker. So your matchmaker yes. was actually God. Wow. My matchmaker <laughs> okay. was God. Um, we met from a very young age. Montreal is a very unique community. It's everyone knows everyone. So I always knew him. He was always someone I would see. Hi, how are you? We were extremely different. He was very quiet. He was always very idle, you know, from a young age. And a friend of mine, when I was in between my treatments, I was in Florida taking a break. And a friend of mine mentioned that Aaron was also becoming a little bit more interested in Judaism, also was planning on studying in Israel, and suggested we get in touch. So that's what happened. I connected with him on Facebook back then. Took him a long time to get back to me. But then once we started talking, it was just magic. You know, we would speak every night, very late hours. And he was extremely supportive on my journey. He came to the hospital with me on my last follow-up visits to see my doctor and to go through everything. And we just really connected. That's interesting and that I, he wasn't worried about your illness. Right. It didn't make a difference to him. Wow. Right. Right. And we just connected from the get-go. There was like this instant connection. It really felt, it was revealed that he was my Basharat. And I think mm -hmm. also it was something I was always searching for, you know, and I felt complete. And that's how we met. And then we were both independently on this journey, both going to Israel. So after that, we both went to Israel together and we studied and we connected to what we were learning and we connected to each other. And we actually got married in Israel. In Israel. Wow. How long yeah. have you been married for? If I may ask. Year, oh, wow. <laughs> 15 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I can't believe it. Yeah. That's so interesting. Were you worried at all about not having children because of your treatments? So there was always a little uncertainty in the back of my mind. And like I mentioned, once I got diagnosed, I had to move really quick. I kind of surrendered to it. It was too big for me to handle. I gave it over to my mother and she really took charge. And we made the decision not to freeze my eggs, mm -hmm. as many women do, of course, who undergo mm -hmm. chemo mm -hmm. and radiation. And... I just always knew that there would be this option that I wouldn't be able to have children. And the doctor said, there is that possibility and it might take you longer than the average person, but I knew I didn't really have a choice. And so I just kept going. And then something extraordinary happened. I was away for Passover. We actually went to go visit a Chabad house in Florida and we helped Shulchan there. And at the end of the trip, she handed me a dollar and she told me this dollar was given from the Lubavitcher Rebbe who would hand out dollars and blessed everyone who came to see him. And she blessed us with a child. Wow. A month later, the doctor did also tell me I had to wait five years from the time I went into remission till I was cancer-free, which is a five-year period. And that was around that time. And I got the dollar. I also got wine from Mrs. Lipsker. 
And I was pregnant in a month from starting to try. And thank God I have three beautiful children who were all born naturally. This year, I celebrated 10 years cancer-free. And this year, for the first time, my mother told me, because I always, people always ask me, why didn't you freeze your eggs? And my answer always is, I don't know, my mother made that decision. And I just trusted her. And I still want to trust her that she made the right decision. My mother told me she never wanted to tell me, but the doctor told her it's either I freeze my eggs or I don't make it. I had to move really quickly. My, my cancer was just attacking my body. And so I didn't have a choice. I wasn't able to freeze my eggs. So Either, you mean if you, you ha- had you got frozen your eggs, then you wouldn't have made it. You wouldn't have. I, I, I would be, you know, that time is very, exactly. They oh, wouldn't wow. have known what would happen. Wow. There was that possibility. Because of the time so, element. Exactly. Mm. It was very, so. You really were moving quickly. So, you know, now I celebrated 10 years cancer-free wow. and my mother told me this story and now I have even so much more gratitude for my three beautiful children. Incredible. How old are your children? Yeah. I have a 10-year-old, I have a seven-year-old, and I have a three-year-old who just celebrated his upshurnish. Beautiful. What does it feel like now to celebrate your 10-year 10, 10 anniversary being cancer-free? So I have a lot of gratitude. I'm extremely grateful to Hashem. And I just remind myself every day, it was a big reminder this year, just reflecting back on the past couple of years of, you know, where I was and how far I've come. And I really feel that the Rebbe gave me a mission. And, you know, by connecting to myself and connecting to Hashem, I was really able to reveal my purpose. And I really feel like I just have to keep going. I have to keep sharing the light that I was able to find in this very difficult time and be able to be there for others who so desperately need light. Everyone does. We're in Gullis, we're in exile, we're living in very difficult times and everyone's searching for something. And so I feel that's my obligation to keep sharing my story of what happened to me, all the miracles. And I feel like miracles happen every single day. We just really have to open up our eyes and our ears to them and we have to be open to it. Hmm. Wow. So you, you sound so optimistic and so full of faith. What do you do on those mornings that you wake up and things don't look so great? I mean, I'm sure, you know, it things, happens often. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure like in, in uh-uh. you know, in comparison to what you went through, but we don't always look at those tragedies anymore, especially once we're, we're out of it. We, we tend right. to be not so grateful right. on a daily basis. So right. what do you say to yourself today when you face challenges? And what do you say to others who might be going through something very challenging in their own lives now? So this morning, actually, a good friend reached out to me and she was having a challenge. And the advice that I gave her, and I think about it all the time, is that we really have no control, right? God mm-hmm. is running the world. He's orchestrating everything from above. And so whatever we do have control over or what we think we have control over, I really try to push myself as much as I possibly can to make the best out of my life and to really set myself up for success. So I have a healthy ritual from the moment I wake up, which is a ritual that Hashem gave us by saying Moda'ani, by having that moment of gratitude and setting the intentions for my day and really trying to bring godliness into everything I do. And so I find that's what really helps me through it all is kind of being proactive and, you know, strengthening my spiritual muscles on a daily basis, knowing that challenges are inevitable. They're going to happen. You know, I kind of expect them. And once they happen, I just try to not be so hard on myself and to remind Mm -hmm. myself that it's normal. Challenges happen and challenges, we grow from them. 
right? It's an opportunity for growth. And every single morning when I am davening, it says in the morning blessings that we're a pure soul. So often we're hard on ourselves or, you know, maybe we screamed at our children. That happens sometimes and we feel so guilty and, you know, all that bad talk that we tell ourselves. But then we remind ourselves that our essence is pure and we can reconnect to that every second. Every Mm -hmm. moment is a new moment. And so I really try to use the wisdom of the Torah to get me through every challenge. That's really what I do. And I really find that helps me. I always write to the Rebbe when I'm going through things. I mean, the most important thing when I'm going through a challenge is to take a step back and to take a deep breath. Hmm. And I know for me as well, what really helps me is just having a support team in place. I'm extremely vulnerable. So it's like a knee-jerk reaction. Whenever I go through something, the first thing I want to do is reach out to a friend or reach out to my mishpia, to my mentor, or to my rabbi, or to a family member, and just share what I'm going through. I'm very open to hearing from other people, and I feel like there's so much to learn from others, and there's so much available. And to also listen to ourselves, you know, to have those quiet moments, to go inwards, and to listen to that voice that often gets silence, and to trust our intuition, Mm -hmm. and to ultimately just keep going. Keep going. No matter what you're going through, keep going. And God gave us so much to do. All his mitzvahs, all his commandments, there's always what to do. And I think the best tool is really being there for others. Mm, it's really true. helping others. I find that always gets me outside of myself. And also just being practical is just reminding yourself that everything you're going through is temporary and it's mm. going to pass and to just let it pass. And there's moments where we're not able to access our tools. Things seem too hard, too challenging to just let it happen, to just ride the wave. Tomorrow's a new day. Tomorrow will be better, right? Tomorrow's yeah. always better. What about when you were going through your illness? You know, you were young, you were just finding God. Did you have any questions? Did you have any anger against God at the time? Like, didn't you feel like, God, why are you doing this to me? What, what do you do when mm-hmm. you feel angry at God? So I'm being very real. I actually never have those feelings. Wow. And I'm grateful for that. I never, I, I, I have a lot of other feelings, but anger's <laughs> okay. not, anger's not one of them. Mm-hmm. I think from the time I got sick, everything just happened so organically where I just kept connecting and I kept on seeing everything was happening and seeing the hand of God in it all, everything mm-hmm. in my story. And I just feel that God really protected me and my life is so much greater now that I went mm-hmm. through what I went through. Mm-hmm. And so I don't feel any anger. And just, I think when you really trust that everything's from Hashem and everything's for the good, we learned that in Hasidus, that's something I really learned from Penny when I met him. Right. I really trust there's nothing to be angry about. If we right. trust God, everything, he loves us so much. And we have to go through what we went, we have to go through what we need to go through. And also not that I ever want to, you know, compare myself to anyone, but if you really take a step back and you look at anyone's life, no one has it easy. Mm. Everyone is struggling. We're all in this together. So I never was angry. You know, there were moments that were hard and I didn't want to go through what I was going through, but I never felt angry. And I always feel that if you focus on anger, it just takes you away from healing. Wow. Interesting. I just felt like it never served me to be angry. It didn't do anything. And 
I always say it's the worst feeling to be anger, angry. Right. And, and the truth of the matter is it actually says in the Torah, right? Not to be angry. Sure. And not that we always follow what the Torah says. If we did, Mashiach would be here. But that's something that resonated with me of like, right. this, this isn't a good feeling. Don't hold on to this. Like, let it go as quickly as possible. Hmm. Were, were there any mitzvot that were hard for you to take on that you still feel challenging to, to today? Um, I can't really think of anything specifically. I know that's something that might've been hard for me then was just like culturally, like just different lifestyle changes that I had to make, you know, restaurants that I would go to that I was like a regular at mm -hmm. and my family would go to, you know, I said, I struggle with FOMO. I just recently did a post on it, you know? <laughs> so there's times, cause I'm still friends with all my friends. There's times that I'm missing out on certain things and I trust that I'm not meant to be there and I'm not supposed to be there, mm -hmm. but I'm human. And those moments are still hard. My sure. friend, my best friend, she just celebrated her husband's 40th birthday and she made a whole affair and it looked beautiful and all my friends were there and I so badly wanted to be there and I felt bad. I'm also a people pleaser. So I felt like, ugh, I really hope she's not upset with me. I hope she understands. I hope I didn't hurt her in any way. So those moments are hard. I have a lot of friends who got married by reform rabbis or you know, married a non-Jew. It was at a church I wasn't able to go those moments for sure were hard. You know, I didn't mm -hmm. want to offend anyone. Um, but ultimately I, you know, there's always going to be struggles. I struggled a lot when I wasn't religious, you know, it's part of life, but ultimately, again, it comes with extreme trust, Amuna, that everything that Hashem gives us, all his commandments, all his mitzvahs are there for us. They're a gift. So in those moments that I might struggle with something or think it's hard, I always remind myself that, not doing it is going to make my life that much harder mm -hmm. and not doing it is going to disconnect me from the source, which is Hashem because mitzvah means connection. So by doing it, I connect and all we want is connection and a sense of belonging with Hashem, our creator. Beautiful. Wow. Is there a mitzvah that you enjoy the most? One of your favorite mitzvot? So I'm a color teacher. Oh, wow. So that <laughs> I teach explain, explain to our readers, what, what our listeners, what that is. So I work with brides when they get engaged till they get married. And I teach them all the mitzvahs that were entrusted to the Jewish women, baking challah, lighting Shabbos candles, and going to the mikvah, following the laws of family purity. So this is a mitzvah that really I connect with. I think it is so beautiful. It's so important for every relationship. So this is something that's close and dear to my heart. I share it with everyone. And mm -hmm. I love teaching brides. I love connecting with them on the most special time in their lives and sharing with them all the secrets. I teach a lot of girls that aren't religious. So I feel like I'm giving them secrets and such a wealth of information. And they're always so grateful. Yeah, for beautiful. It. Wow. Yeah. So that, that young girl, that young little Amanda who was searching for something, who was searching for a greater meaning, what, what would you say to her today? Well, to just keep searching, to keep searching. And you're going to find what you're looking for if you keep actively looking, right? And that's what I would say to anyone listening of really just like tap into yourself and listen to that voice. It tells you exactly what you need and what you want, what you really want to do. So often I speak to people and they're not happy with their everyday life, what they're doing for work. And I say to them, just take a moment. What do you really, if it was up to you, if you had a silver ball, what would you choose to do with your life? How would you want your life to look like? And then take all the steps to make that happen. Hmm. And it's not going to happen overnight, but it will happen. 
Amazing. One final thought. What are your what are your dreams or hopes for the future? Where do you see yourself going? So I I'm gonna reveal something right now. <laughs> I'm putting it out there in the universe. So I'm studying to be a life coach. Mm-hmm. That's something that, you know, I feel like I do a lot of coaching with brides and something I love to do. I really love to connect with people. And I feel like I've gone through so much that I have so much to share. And so that's something that I would love to do. I don't think it's going to happen overnight because I am so busy doing so many different things. So I'm not going to be hard on myself. I'm taking it very slow. And my husband always says like, you could still, without the certificate, you could still coach, you know, everyone's (laughs) looking for coaching. Um, That's really something I would love to do. And just everything that I'm doing to intensify it. You know, I speak, I'd love to travel more around the world, meet more communities, connect to more people, teach more brides, um, you know, doing a lot of inner work with my family. My children are my priority. That's really, you know, charity always starts at home. And I'm really zooming in on my family these days. You know, I told you my kids age, you know, everyone always says like little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. I feel like I'm at the stage where if I'm really listening to that voice, my kids need me a lot. And oh, so you just, really, just wait. <laughs> I know. I, I don't, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I'm just being present right now. Yeah, yeah for sure. So, the most important. So, Absolutely. So I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of that work and I enjoy putting in the hard work because I know it will pay off. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, my goal is to really just raise a beautiful family, my children, and to give them the strength and tools to navigate this world. You were looking for purpose and your mission, and it seems like you found it. Thank you so much for joining us, Amanda, Sara Riva, Spira. Thank you. thank you for your beautiful story, your beautiful journey, and for sharing it with us today. Thank you. What I really liked about the interview was Amanda was always searching for something, even though she grew up in such a privileged home. And yet, when she was 21, the time that she was actually thinking that she was finding what she was looking for, that was when she was faced with a very serious life-threatening illness. She had cancer and she had to deal with all that and really find God even in those darkest moments. Uh, I love how she says she wasn't really angry with God, but she was really looking for understanding and seeing how God was running her life and how God's hand was in her life. If you like these interviews, please log on to Chabad.org forward slash extraordinary where you'll find lots and lots of these interviews. Please comment. We'd love to hear from you and make sure you subscribe so that you get them regularly.